this evening we're looking at the final psalm for this section, not for our overall study, but the final psalm for this section. Let's look at Psalm uh, 29, uh, which I have the title here, uh, The God of the Thunderstorm. And if you look at Psalm 29, it's clearly using some figurative language with this storm that is discussed and, and used here, or I should say described here in Psalm 29. In Psalm 29. Uh, this psalm was written by David. The, the occasion uh, is uncertain. Uh, there's a lot of times, I think, in Psalms that we could try to apply to certain things that would, would apply to his life when fit. But here, this is one that uh, at least I have now as being one that's unclear. Uh, David raised his voice, we know, in Psalm 28 in prayer to God. And now we find really kind of a little bit of a continuation because this is more describing, I think, some more descriptions of how God responded. He uses some figurative language in Psalm 29 to show in, in reference to God's response to his prayer from Psalm 28. Um, the core of Psalm 29 is a description of what we would call a thunderstorm, when one we may get this evening. Uh, and we all have seen and heard thunderstorms. And I've said before, I'm not afraid of storms. There are certain things I don't, I am, well, I am afraid of tornadoes, I will say that. I've seen plenty of them close enough. Um, but we all have probably been asleep at night. You go to bed, you know there's a storm coming, but you're not going to stay up because it's just a thunderstorm. You say, just a thunderstorm. And then you get woken up by a loud thunderclap in the middle of the night, and it startles you. Uh, and I think there's some descriptions of that here in Psalm 29. It's some very, uh, some, some things that we can no doubt uh, understand today. The descriptions that are used in this psalm concerning the storm. And, it, and it's, it's interesting as we go through this that the psalmist doesn't show any fear in Psalm 29. And I think one of the reasons why is because at the end of Psalm 28, he begins to show again, show how he has no fear because God has heard uh, his supplication. God has heard his prayer. And, and so Psalm 29, I have uh, really three sections in this 11 verse Psalm. Uh, verses one and two is kind of a uh, introduction, if you will, to uh, or a call maybe to, to praise. Some call it an introduction to worship, uh, but it's really a call to praise. And then verses three through nine is really discussing and describing the storm. And that really is using in a figurative way to show God's response to David's uh, prayer. I'm not, when we go through this, I'm not trying to say that God responds by a thunderstorm, but he uses this to describe God's response. Because we know sometimes that we talk about you know, loud thunderings and sometimes they're described like the voice of God. We see that here in Psalm 29. Uh, but not to be taken literally as God responding every single time in, in this type of way. And then verses 10 and 11 is a assurance of, of blessing. And so we'll begin by looking at Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. He says here, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now one of the things that stands out to me as you look through this is there are two other ideas that are found within verses 1 and 2. The first one being glorifying God, and the second one being uh, honoring God. If you look at Exodus chapter 28, excuse me, Exodus chapter 18, rather. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, you look at verse 10. It says, And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, he has, delivered, he has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And so he uses, he talks about blessed is the Lord. He delivered you out of these things. What were they doing? They were glorifying God, giving thanks to God because of what he has done. And we find that same idea numerous times throughout the Psalms. We've seen it here in our section, Psalms 25 uh, through 29. And so glorifying God, and that's a common thing we see throughout the scriptures. You see it a lot, especially in the Psalms. Uh, as we see here, uh, O ye mighty ones, given the Lord glory and strength. 
glorifying God, give God a glory due to his name. We say that many times. Uh, when we do, when we are involved in a work of a church, just for example, say when we're doing vacation Bible school, we're out, do, we're doing our gospel meeting and someone tells us that they're enjoying it, those types of things. We want to give, give God the glory, don't we? Because it's, it's, he's the reason we're doing all these things. He's the reason we're organizing meetings and BBSs and things like that. The lectureship coming up uh, very quickly. Again, giving God the glory uh, in those things. And we find that here in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 29. And also we see another example of that in Exodus 18 and verse 10, where they give God the glory for delivering them out of, out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh. And then the second idea we want to look at here is honoring God. You see in verse 2, he says, Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. When we worship God, are we trying to give honor to God? Who, who is the one who, when we're, worship, when we're in a worship service, let me ask it this way. Who is the worship service for? It kind of depends on how you want to view it, but... Biblically speaking, it's for God, right? We could say it's for us in the sense that it encourages us. Yes, that, that is true. But the worship service is directed towards God. It's not directed towards us. And one of the reasons I think one of the best examples helps understand that is we think about certain groups that add things to worship. Are they doing it for God? Or are they doing it for themselves? Well, when you boil it down, it's for themselves. You know, why, when people do certain things. And, and the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, there's a clear pattern for worship. And so when we come together to worship God, it is to give Him glory and honor. If you look at Psalm 71, uh, Psalm 71, and looking at uh, verse 8 here. Psalm 71 and verse 8 says, Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with, the, with your glory all the day. Praise is given to God. It's directed towards God. So yes, we're giving Him glory as we see here in verse 8, but we're also we're honoring Him. When we give praise to God, we are honoring God. When we give worship that is done according to the Scriptures, according to the pattern, we are honoring God. Now, if you can honor God in worship, is it possible to worship in such a way that you do not honor God? Yes. If one is true, the opposite has to be true, right? So yes, we can honor God by worshiping Him in the, in the prescribed manner. But then we can do Him disservice by, by worshiping Him in a way that is not pleasing to Him. Therefore, we're not honoring Him. And so we can honor God and we can, do, we can dishonor Him, to use that term as well, when we do things that are not according to the pattern we find in the Old Testament or the New Testament, depending on what time period we're looking at. Us today, obviously, in the New Testament time. And so we look here in Psalm uh, 29, verses 1 and 2. Give unto the Lord, the mighty one, you, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, if you think about how this is described. Give unto the Lord glory and and strength. Does that sound like lip service? When we say lip service, what do we mean? Right. It's just, it's the motions. You say it, you don't mean it. It's kind of a, a habit. This is what we do, so this is why I'm here. So there you go. Well, that's not what's described in verse 1 or in verse 2. To give unto the Lord glory and strength. The, he's, he's referencing honoring God and praising Him and giving Him glory and honor in a way that actually, actually requires of us effort. It's something we are deliberately doing on purpose. It's not a, a lip service. It's not a, ha a haphazard type of thing. But we're worshiping God. We're honoring Him. We're glorifying Him. We're praising Him uh, in a deliberate, purposeful way and according to uh, His Word. Now, he says in verse 2 here, Given the Lord the glory due to his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And I like that he 
I like this last phrase, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You ever thought about it this way? Can worship be a beautiful thing? Absolutely. All the avenues of it, I mean, it is a beautiful thing, right? You pr prayer is you're literally communicating with God through Christ, singing praises to God. I mean, we could, that could be a whole night discussing the beauty of praising God, why we do it, the songs that we sing, what those things mean. Praising God, beautiful thing to do. The Lord's Supper, we're talking about on the Sunday, the worship of the assembly, remembering Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that's a beautiful thing. The preaching and the teaching, regardless of who may be up there, it's a beautiful thing, right? The truth being preached, the truth going out, the truth being heard, but then also the contribution, the giving back to God. You think about those acts of worship, those avenues we find in the New Testament, and you think about how beautiful it is that we have the opportunity, yes, commandment to do so, but the opportunity to do so. You think about why we do those things, and you think about, because worship, it moves us closer to God in many ways, because when you're truly, when your heart is in it, what are you thinking about? Are we thinking about what God has done for us? Are we thinking about what God has promised to do for us in the future? That is heaven, eternal life. You think about what awaits the faithful, uh, that idea of eternal life being a place with God and Christ for eternity, no end. We think about why we are doing the things that we're doing. And so worship is a truly beautiful thing. Now we know that it can be, as we already mentioned, can be twisted to be something it's not. And it's no longer beautiful. No matter what people might think, if it's not following the design and the pattern of the, of the Bible, you know, it's not beautiful anymore. If it's not beautiful to God, it shouldn't be beautiful to us, should it? And so you think about that last phrase, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship that is holy has to be worship that's done how? With reverence and care. Reverence and care and truth. You're right. Truth. It's, it's not holy if it's not truth, if it's not with reverence, sincerity, and don't get ahead of me when I say this. Sometimes we can worship in truth. We're doing all those things, but our sincerity is not really there. It's not really, we're not, our, the, the reason, the attitude, the purpose, like we've said before, I think I said this on Sunday, that uh, if our heart isn't right, our attitude, the reasoning, the attitude behind it is not correct, then it doesn't matter what we're doing. Sure, you can be involved in all five acts of worship, in the sense you're physically there doing those things, but if it's not sincere, then it, your heart's not in it, right? And you go back and look at, like we're going to on Sunday night, and it's also referenced, uh, similar ideas are referenced in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew 5 through 7, the sincerity of people, the reasoning behind the things they're doing. You know, Malachi chapter 1, sure, they were doing some of the things that they should be doing, but it was not actually correct. Their heart wasn't right. That's why I began to be corrupted worship and on and on and on. But that's something for Sunday night. And so worship can be a beautiful thing, should be a beautiful thing, but it can become something that's very corrupt, very twisted, and it's no longer uh, beautiful in the sight of God. It shouldn't be beautiful in our eyes either. So verses 1 and 2, a call to, to praise him. And, and then, you know, every time we see things like this, there's always reasons that are given. You know, if you go back to the previous psalm with the answer to, to prayer, and we build up to it, and then we see in Psalm, Psalm 29, why is he wanting to praise him? Because God's heard his prayers, we saw in the previous psalm. And then we move on to the next few verses here, the storm as it's described here in Psalm 29. He says here, uh, we're going to look at one or two at a time here, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of, of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of, of majesty. Now, again, we're using this idea of a storm to describe God's response. And God's response is 
really numerous times in scriptures you think it could be could be described in a storm. You go back to Noah. How did the flood begin? With rain. It doesn't mention, to my memory, anything else, but rain, we would call it to be a storm, right? It's maybe not a big storm, but it's a storm. But the Bible also tells us at one point that the windows of heaven opened up. It's referencing a downpour, and now that's a storm. It's amazing that, yes, we can... We can be annoyed by rain, but then it can also rain so hard that we don't want to go anywhere, don't we? You ever see someone pull over inside the road because it's raining so hard they're afraid to drive anywhere? You see them stopping on these overpasses because it's just downpour. And so even when we think something doesn't sound like a storm, it can be when God uh, or when, when, when those things change. And here in the Bible, as we see here, uh, God's glory as we're going to see in a moment, his glory, his power, and his majesty is being referenced in verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over uh, over the waters. Uh, you think about this idea. God, if you actually think about, if you go back to uh, creation, the Genesis chapter 1, do you remember in the first few verses of chapter 1 how it mentions the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? So this isn't the same idea, but we do find some similarities there, right? Being that God is there. Uh, the, voice, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God, of, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. No doubt, if, he is, if His voice is there, if He's the God of glory, if the God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters, He is present, right? He is there. If He is over it, that means He is present. It also, you could say, shows forth uh, His His power His and His uh, His uh, control over those things, which is what we're going to look at later. Well, let's look at Psalm 19 and verse 1. As you think about God's glory. Psalm 19, and looking here at verse 1. A very familiar verse. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. That is, what you see around you points towards God. And we're not going to go into a big atheism debate and those types of things, but it very clearly is pointing out that creation bears forth the evidence for a creator, and the creator is God. Uh, you know, you think about it, how the world around us points to the Creator, and the Bible points to that Creator being God. It's identified as God. We can talk about design, all those other things, but His glory also is part of His ability. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. And that one verse that says that God created everything, because why? Because He is God, and He can do those things. He can create, He has His ability. And because he has that ability, it also means that he should be glorified because of what he has done for us. And we go back to, to creation. Why did God create the, the world? He didn't need it. He was already in existence, right? Genesis 1 points that out. He was already there. John chapter 1, verse 1 the following points out that God and Christ were already present. And so the world was created for us and designed in a very, in a, in a very detailed way that circled around man. And it is by his glory, by his power, as we're going to look, to look to Job next, that God has done these things. Job 26. And again, like we mentioned before, you have to be careful when you look at Job because it may be his friends talking and they may be misapplying some things. You look at Job 26 and verse 12. It says here, he stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. Job 26 and verse 12. Is that true concerning God? Yes. God has that ability. God's abilities, his strength, his power does demand glory. But what's interesting is God is much more than a powerful being, to use that term, entity, right? A spirit. He's much more than just a powerful God. He's beyond that. There's more to him than just his abilities. It's not that look what I can do. It's I've done this, but there's a whole, there's a whole lot more to it than just that. But his ability, his power 
no doubt is one reason why we give him glory. Because all that God has done, as we have recorded in the Bible, <coughs> points back towards man. And if you look at <coughs> Isaiah 53, with this idea of everything God has done points back to man, even Christ, who, as we look at Isaiah 53, which we're not going to this evening, it's all about Christ coming, right? It's spoken in a way that it's future tense, and it's all about what Christ is going to do. Now, we can look at it and see that, okay, everything God has done is, is pointed to the Messiah coming, and yes, that's true, but why was the Messiah coming in the first place? For us. And so it all comes back to mankind. Creation, Christ coming to the earth, doing all those things he did, fulfilling all those prophecies, it all, it all comes back to mankind. Everything God has done has been for us. Which we can probably say, can we agree that we can be the most selfish creation ever? Yeah. Bible history itself alone points that out. But nonetheless, he has done all these things for mankind. Let's, let's move ahead to Psalm 33 and verse 6. As we think about God's power. Psalm 33 and verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. This is the first time anyone's ever spoken, and things happened. Remember, this is way before, you know, hey Siri. God spoke, and it happened. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Hush. Uh, that figures. Uh, but this is way before any of those things. She needs the Bible, too. Uh, before any of those things happened, God spoke, and the world began. You think about that. God spoke, and the world, or we would say time, began. You ever think about how time has no way to be measured until we get back to creation? And how much time do we have? Do we know the last between before creation? We have no idea. Because we measure time by creation forward. And so we look at Psalm um, 33 and verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He spoke, and things came into being. No one else can do that. We have the ability to speak to machines, obviously, and they do certain things, but not near like we we're talking about here, right? He spoke and things came to fruition that had never been ever before. Why do we give God glory? Because of his power, because of who he is, and the list goes on and on and on. Let's look at one more. Psalm 145. <clears throat> Psalm 145. And looking at verse 6. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. That's an awesome verse. Because he says, basically, I'm going to talk about everything God has ever done. His wonderful acts. His, 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 uh, he says, I will, man will speak of your might, of your the might of your awesome acts, because it takes strength to do what God has done, right? We've already seen how mankind can't do what he has done. And I will declare or announce, you must even proclaim, your greatness. Why? Because everything God has done is for mankind. And so we look at Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. He is pictured as being still, Present, he is the what? He is over the waters. He is the God of the God of glory thunders. He's a God of glory, not the God of thunder. But he is. You could say that too, because he created that too, right? He wasn't around, so he decided he was going, he was going to do it. Uh, the Lord is over many waters. Verse four: The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You know, when when God, when the Bible gives examples of God, when it literally speaks to people. To my memory, they all fall on their face. Do you remember when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush? Do you remember how the Bible says Moses put his face towards the ground, which was a common position? Because I think it's very clear that at least part of that was, one, it's, it's God, he's afraid, and two, because of who it was. 
respect. Yes, it was a burning bush. It wasn't, you know, God wasn't there in a form, but he was there through that burning bush speaking through him. He knew who it was. That's why he reacted the way he did. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ goes up the mountain, top of the mountain and takes with him the inner three, which included Peter, right? And Peter acts like Peter does, right? He goes on the top of the mountain. He, he, he sees what's taking place. and says, so let's build here three tabernacles. And what happened? The Lord God spoke. This is my blood, son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, right? Listen to him. And what happened? Well, the Bible says, you know, uh, well, obviously they, they, if I remember correctly, they fell their face. They heard God's, God's voice. They can't begin to imagine that would have been like. And God spoke to them. What was, and what was that example of? Well, God's glory, God's power, his majesty, his holiness. They knew who, he, who was speaking. That's what's interesting so many times when those things happen. I'm going to derail for just a second. There's never any doubt about who it is. You remember on Mount Carmel when all those prophets of Baal call out their false god and they do all these things and cut themselves and all that stuff. But when the prophet of God prayed and, and the fire came down and burned it up, they didn't once argue that, hey, that was, that was Baal. They knew it was God, right? They, there was no doubt. And whenever God speaks and does these things, there's never any doubt whatsoever. Uh the last point I want us to think about is we look at verses 3 and 4. We've seen God's glory, God's power. Then next also, uh, His majesty. We look at Psalm 68. Beginning uh, from verse 33 through verse 35 of Psalm 68. And notice how similar some of this sounds. To him who rides on the heavens, on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sent out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribed strength to God. His, his excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in, is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. There was no doubt in that writer's mind who he was, who he was referencing, right? The God of heaven, the God of the Bible. Look back there again in verse 33. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens. The him is capitalized because it's referencing God, the God of the Bible. Not a false God, but the God of the Bible. Um, everybody wants to listen in tonight. Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 33, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Well, that could also be a reference like we're talking about here in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 29. The God of glory thunders. Many times his voice is described as thunderings, isn't it? When you go back here to, and I know I'm jumping back and forth. When you go back here to Psalm 68, looking at verse 34, he says, ascribe strength to God. That means we, when we see this strength, we say it is God. There's no one else. There's no other possibility. It's God. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. It means his strength is seen literally everywhere, right? Verse 35, O God, you are more awesome than, than your holy places. The God of Israel who gives strength and power to his people, blessed be God. Again, majesty, power, and glory all given to God. And we see that same idea in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 29. Now we go back to Psalm 29, looking at verses 5 and 6. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. And, and, skip like a calf, Lebanon and, and Siron like a young wild ox. What were the cedars of Lebanon known for? You remember? Their size. Their size, their strength, right? And so he uses an example of something that we would say today, you know, one, one goofy movie, there's a scene where a guy was shaking hands some, with someone. He says, my word is my bond is as strong as oak. Meaning it's, you know, that's strong, right? Well, the cedars of Lebanon is the same idea. They were known for their strength. 
They were used for all types of things that required a great deal of strength. When we look at verse 5, what happens? The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Russ, is it possibly them that use the, um, they have uh, a tree like that on a flag? Uh, I'm not so sure about that one. I don't know. Uh, you just saying that for the first time. I never would have equated the two, but I see a connection there. I just, I just know for as we see throughout the scriptures that their their cedars are always spoken of in the sense that they were strong. They were used for all types of things. And now, if you look at verse five, it says, "The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars." It's His voice, right? Now, we've heard people yell before. If you've ever been to a football game or something, you hear a lot of loud yelling. When the team comes out, people get loud. You can actually feel sometimes the vibrations or whatever. And But here, you know, those voices, they're not doing anything but causing some vibrations and making your ears buzz. But here, his voice breaks the cedars. He says, yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon, showing his, the, the power of his words. Not just the power of his voice, but the power of his words. He makes him also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Siron, like a young, uh, like a young ox. So in the storm, the great cedar symbols of symbol of uh, a strength and a force. They come crashing down. Uh, the two mountains here, Mount Lebanon and Siron, uh, uh, seem to skip about. That is, they move almost. They shake. And sometimes you hear people say, "Well, the mountain, like the mountain, or the ground shook." I've never been. Well, that's not true. We've had earthquakes here in Oklahoma, but usually it feels like your feet are just shaking a little bit. But here, the idea is their earthquake is, the mountains are spoken as moving to his voice, like they were shaking. The power of God's voice, the power of his words. And yes, if God wanted to speak so loudly to make these things physically happen, he could do so. But I don't think about it in that physical sense. I think about it as his words are powerful. God's word, to put it even more in a spiritual sense, changes things, doesn't it? Not only people, but it changes groups of people. It changes nations. Uh, it changes uh, everything. And here, the, the cedars and the mountains are, are even seen uh, to be affected. If you look next, uh, verses eight and uh, verses seven and following, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. So this is a description of, of some have really have, have ascribed this to lightning, not so much fire, but the idea there being his voice is doing all these things, right? The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. That you know, a picture of a deer pregnant and his voice makes them give birth earlier, right? Shocks them, startles them. And strips the forest bare in his temple. And in his temple, everyone says glory. And so we have the storm really describing his power, his glory, his majesty, the power of his words, because, again, his words change things. They change people. And I think about also there that the Lord, uh, the voice of the Lord shakes wilderness, uh, the voice of the Lord, the Lord shakes wilderness of Kadesh. Have you ever seen in, in a lot of wooded areas, after a really bad storm, the bark will just be blown off of trees, some that are just sheared off. Of various storms, and that's kind of what comes to my mind there in verse eight. He just shakes the wilderness. No doubt, trees falling, but sometimes it's almost in, uh, even more impressive or equally impressive to see just the bark falling off the trees, or trees broken in half and branches become spears, basically, and go through all kinds of things. But the power of God uh, being seen there, seen there in verses uh, seven uh, and through verse nine. So for, uh, verse 8, from the mountains of the far north, the, the storm sweeps down to the wilderness of Kadesh in the distant south. And voice not, in verse 9, the voice of, of God makes the, the, uh, the deer give birth prematurely. Uh, the storm strips the forest of bare branches, leaves, and, and even bark. But meanwhile, look at the end of verse 9. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. Does that sound like fear? It's referencing those who are followers of God. He had this storm that's described, and it's, it's, it's given here to, to really to help illustrate God's power, his majesty, things such as that, his ability. And I think a glimpse of it, right? And we can look at other sections as well to help, help us see more examples of God's glory. And we get a glimpse of it here, his glory, his power, and all those things. But with this storm being described, 
And all these things taking place, again, you know, the cedars being broken, the, 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 the flames of fire or the lightning, as some people uh, apply that to, uh, the wilderness being, being torn apart. And then verse 9, and in his temple, because who is in his temple? His faithful followers, right? Only followers of God went to the temple. In his temple, everyone says glory. So everyone is safe. Everyone is secure. And glory is a reference to giving God, well, no doubt glory, but also praise, right? You don't say glory when you're scared to death. And so they obviously have no, no fear there in verse 9. Now, here towards the latter part of this psalm, we have the assurance of blessing in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, he says, The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, referencing the flood of Noah's time, right? And the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So let's notice verse 10 first. You have the Lord set enthroned at the flood. That means that during the time period of the flood, that God was on the throne, right? Before time began, as we know it, God was on his throne. Where else would he be? He is eternal. And so he is pictured there as being on the throne. He is enthroned at the flood, meaning he was present. He was aware of it. You know that he had a part of it. I mean, he, the rain descended and all those things happened because God, right? Now let's turn, if you will, to Psalm 47. Psalm 47, and looking at uh, verse 2, as we think about the, the sovereignty of God, He is over all. Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. And again, we see that same idea in Psalm 29 there in verse 10, right? He sat enthroned at the flood. He was already there before time began. God was already where he's always been, over everything. And we find that same idea here in Psalm 47, verse 2. Uh, He is a great king over all the earth. And then we find in the latter part of Psalm 29, verse 10, he says there, And the Lord sits as king forever, which means nothing changes. He is still king. He was before time again, he has been since time again, and he will be for always and ever. Looking at Psalm 16, we see uh, God, because he is sovereign, because he is over all things, we see his control. We're going to look at just one one verse here. Uh, But look at uh, Proverbs 16. In verse 9, it says, And a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, when we're talking about this in context, he's talking about someone who is loyal to God, a follower of God. If they are following God, then God is the one who is directing his steps. We don't mean in miraculous, literally, he's telling, whispering in your ear, this is what you should do. But we understand through his word, he does direct our steps, how we should live, how we should do everything in our lives so that we can make sure we're righteous and prepared for the judgment. He directs his, his steps there in Psalm 16 and verse 9. God is able to give us an example of how or give us a, a pathway, a plan in order that we can follow his commandments so we can have heaven as our home. God can has no doubt control as we've seen not just in the ability to provide a way for mankind to get to heaven. But can you imagine the various miraculous events that happened throughout history? What would take place if God wasn't in control? Can you imagine the flood if God wasn't in control? What if the rain never started? What if the rain never stopped? What if the waters never resided? You know, the list goes on and on. If you think about just one in particular event, what if God wasn't in control? Fully in control. Have you ever seen someone, they start out doing something and they're in complete control, but as time goes on, they just, they're not able to control it. They may be working on, on something or, you know, whatever it may be, pick a task, and as it goes on, they begin to lose control and they have to stop what they're doing. What about Solomon Moore if God wasn't in control? 
what we started the raining the hellfire, but never stopped it. Wasn't able to do so. And so the list goes on and on and on. God definitely is in control. He has the ability to direct man's path, but only according to our willingness, right? God doesn't forcefully direct our path. He directs our path only when we are willing. As we see there in Proverbs 16, verse 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. also points out that God's way is better than man's, and there's many, many verses to show that to be the case. And then we also find them of the sovereignty of God. We see his control, but also we see his supreme authority. Uh, going back to Psalm 47 this time, in verses 2 and 3, Psalm 47, verses 2 and 3, we saw verse 2 earlier, but we're going to add verse 3 here. But the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the, the peoples under us and, and the nations under our feet. Does that mean that God is able to, in Old Testament time period, for example, to bring our enemies, everyone who is against the faithful, under their, under their feet? Does, does God ever cause the faithful to be victorious? In the Old Testament, in a very physical sense, yes, right? But also for us today, we think about it in a more in an even more spiritual sense. Who has the ultimate victory? The Christian, right? The church. Revelation is all about the church being victorious, enduring those persecutions and being victorious, the faithful enduring those things. And in that sense, because the Christian has the victory in through Christ for us today, all those who are against us will one day face face God's wrath for that. So for that reason. We do have that victory over them. We are able, to, they will be subdued. God will, no doubt, uh, put them under under his feet. He says in verse 3, our feet, the idea being that they will be uh, taken care of. Let's also notice here in Psalm 83. Psalm 83, looking at verse 18. That they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, there are times that God's faithful wanted to pray that God would do certain things so that, that mankind could see that he is the one true God. And we find in verse 18, notice what he says here, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. God has supreme authority, doesn't he? He is the one who sets the standard of righteousness. No matter what laws may come into existence uh, by man, God's standard is still the same. Supreme authority, he says, are the, are the most high over all the earth. All right, let's look at verse 11. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And the first thing we want to notice here is who is his people? Followers of God, right? His being a reference to those who are His. It shows possession, ownership, right? His people. They are His. The Lord will give strength to His people, which excludes any other group, right? His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Again, His group. And so that tells us that, you know, the strength and the peace here is a blessing, and that blessing is given only to his people. Now, you think about that, you think about how many times say people will say things that imply that they believe that everyone goes to heaven. God doesn't say to everyone that he gives strength. He doesn't say to everyone do I give peace. He says to his people, what happens? I will give strength. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will, will bless his people with peace, excluding any other group, which means only his people get blessings. And what's the greatest blessing of all? Salvation, right? So that would imply by deduction that only his people have salvation. When you think about there in the New Testament, how Christ, when he, when he is given the when he's given that 
illustration, if you will, of the judgment day. When he says, many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not, basically they say, done all these different things. And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you, not apart from me, you who work uh, wickedness or lawlessness, depending on what translation you're looking at. And so they don't, even though they claim they've done things, they're not going to be in heaven. But the next group, he says, those are those who are doing his Father's will will be in heaven. And we find that same idea, no doubt, here in verse 11. Because they are his people, implying they're doing his will, he will give them strength and he will bless his people with peace. Now let's look at Psalm 38, which will be our 138, which will be our last section of scriptures we'll look at this evening. Psalm 138, verses 3 through 8. Psalm 138, beginning in verse 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will, will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. If you're looking at verses 3 through 8 there, who is getting the blessings from God? Who is getting the strength, that peace? Who is having their prayers heard by God and answered by God? The faithful. Yeah, his people, the faithful. You draw back to verse 3 again. Notice what he says there. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Implying the Lord heard and responded to his prayer. And as we go through there, he talks about how the Lord has no bias, no, you know, doesn't pick one group over the other, even the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar, which means they're going to have to make themselves right. They're going to be proud. They want to come near to him. And he goes on to talk about all the many ways in which and reasons why he gives glory to God. In verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Verse 7 alone tells us that God is with us even in the most difficult times. Amen. Now you think about that for a second. How easy is it to be around someone when everything's going great? To be around them when their car isn't broken down? To be around them when they are, when they are employed? To be around them when, they, when everything is going good, when people aren't sick and almost dying? It, and, and they're in good shape. It's easy to be around people then, but when things are going really, really difficult and things are really, very really hard, in verse 7, he says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, which means everything around me is it's difficult times, he says, you revive me. Reviving meaning you refresh me, right? When I think about that, I tell people when, when they miss services sometimes that you're missing your chance to be revived because this is one of the ways we get revived. How can you be revived when you're disobeying God's commands together together? So we are revived by God. We are revived by one another. And here he mentions specifically it is his reviving specifically comes from God. You will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, implying that God will deal with all those who are troubling him. And your right hand will save me. One hand fends off the enemies. The other hand saves him. You ever seen a parent, a grandparent, reach out with one hand and pull a child of safety with another hand, move, move aside the, the danger. Maybe it's a dog that gets too close, and you see them do this with one hand with the child and this with the other to get the dog away. Maybe it's a leg to a foot. <laughs> the idea, it's moving the, the problem outside with one and pulling the other to safety. And that's how God is, is described there in that verse as well. And for us today, we think about, as we've seen here in Psalm 25 through 29, this idea of drawing near to God, there's a lot of ways that we can draw near to God. But if we neglect any of them, if we ignore them, we say, well, this isn't really that important. Kind of like the 
man, we mentioned our devotional. I'm not giving up this to come close to God. If we neglect it, are we ever really going to draw near to God? It's hard to draw near to God when you're purposefully with actions and things in your life, keeping him at a distance. You know, as we say sometimes, we keep certain things at arm length. God shouldn't be one of them, should he? Any comments or questions as we are over time? When I let's read through this and go on through it. When I look at verses four through nine, the loss. It says the voice of the Lord, the powerful voice of the Lord pulls an ecstasy. And then it says what that voice is going to do. Mm-hmm. And so as you break the cedars, it's kind of splintered. Cedars were being, you know, the strong, powerful trees. Well, the pillars that we stand on, or the law stand on and their beliefs. If you read the word of God, it shatters those beliefs once you stand on. Um, you know, it makes you makes you skip like a calf. You know, it changes your tune of how you do things. Uh, or the divine flames fire. It shakes the wilderness. It shakes your world. Mm-hmm. When you read the word of God and really apply it to your life, it shakes your world and what you believe and how you do it. And you will be in the temple saying, glory to God. Mm-hmm. So you can clearly take that, even though it's David here, who is a man of God, saying that you can take it and apply it to what it will do, what the word of God will do to an awesome person if they truly read it and want to understand it. Definitely, definitely. And you see that, we see a lot of examples that even in the New Testament, Acts 2, you know, one, one of they come and ask Peter, what shall we do? Because it did shake them. I mean, Peter rattled them to the core. 3,000 responded, many didn't. But those 3,000, they knew what was up. They needed to change, right? And so, and like you said, definitely, that's why the Word of God is, is referred to as being a, a, a two-edged sword. It's even able to pierce between bone and marrow and discern between thoughts and intents of the heart, which means it gets down to the very deep where you want no one else to be. But that's where God's word pricks you and changes you from there, you know, from the inside out. So very good point. Anything else? All right, then we're going to be concluded for this evening. The Paul's will come forward at least in our closing prayer, then we'll be dismissed.